And Lord God, we ask today that by the power of your Spirit and your Word, the rule of uh, King Jesus in our lives might be firmly established. Amen. Well, we start today a new series, as you'll have realized from our reading. Uh, We're going to be in the book of 1 Kings. And whenever we go into the Old Testament, it's always worth asking why. Why do we study the Old Testament? Uh, It's one of those reversals. The very fact that it's old could mean for some that it's kind of uh, revered, um, uh, to be honoured, whereas for others it could just mean out of date. And that's part of the reversals that we're familiar with from uh, Scripture. Just like Jo made the assumption that because she came up after me to the lectern, she was second in place. But if you read Scripture, you will realize that the honored place is that the one who comes second or third. It's an ascending sequence in the thought of Scripture, not a descending one. Why do we study the Old Testament? Because if we can get how uh, far back God's purposes go, then we're more likely to be confident in how far forward his purposes go in our own generation. As we see those purposes in the New Testament, and we are still living in that New Testament. Could we have the uh, slide up? Thank you. Uh, It's not the best, but I shall try and make some sense of it. The, The whole of the Old Testament, indeed the whole of the New Testament, can be put, uh, put up in that little, um, that, oh, where have I gone? Oh, typical. Works if I hit it, but that's not a lot of help, really. Oh, there we go. No, oh. Uh. I would quite like this. Andrew, could you, or Steve, can you see if you can get me some, is Steve in? At the back. Steve, can you see if you can get me two triple A's, please? Thank you. That's going to sound wonderful on the tape. Um, (laughs) Robot preacher needs to keep going. Um, uh, The the whole of the, the Old and New Testament can be summed up in that little tagline, God's people in God's land under God's rule. Uh, It's obvious enough, I guess, for the Old Testament, because we're talking about the people and the land and the kings and those who came after them, uh, possibly less obvious in our own time. But it's still God's people, uh, and we are still living in God's land, his territory, the kingdom of God. Cheers, mate. Thanks. And um, uh, under God's rule, we want to be ruled by his spirit. Uh, but that tagline is important that it does work. It's still not working properly. I've still got a very, very faint image. Oh, well. My main concern is that map, uh, because I don't think the, the... I think it's quite light, and it's not easy to see the differences between uh, the different colours. I'll do my best without the pointer. Um, ah, unless... No, she's at Steppers. I was going to say... I, the, you don't know where Joe keeps the pointer in the office, do you? Ah, a resource person is just on his way to go and check it, I suspect. Good, thank you. We'll see what we can do. Um, 
God's people in God's land under God's rule. It's true for the old and it's true for those of us who live in the era of the New Testament. Much of the first and second book of Samuel, which comes before this, and 1 Kings is going to sound like a wonderful triumph. But the whole point is that all of that triumph goes hideously wrong. Uh, These people that we're going to be looking at, they had the best law, the best leaders, the best land. And yet they failed utterly in the end. The absolute best of everything was not good enough. The writer knows by the time we've got to the end and will show us that something else was needed. Even if writing at the time he did, he didn't know what that was, but we do. Well, let me take you to Scotland uh, for a minute. Any Scots in, uh, in today? One, two... Those with Scots accents and those without are all eligible. Okay, three. Okay, four. Okay, oh, yes, of course. Hi, Janet. Um, It was a separate kingdom until 1707. The time may come when they look back on 2014 and say, oh, yes, do you remember that brief blip of 300 years when it was united, uh, uh, one kingdom, with England and Wales, that we don't know until September uh, rolls round this year. Now, every few years, the question comes up, usually in October, as to whether we really need to put back the clocks, or whether we should stay on British summer time. And every time, we're told that school children in Scotland would find that difficult. So someone suggests that if Portugal and Spain can manage living with a time zone difference... Uh, and lots of countries, big countries in the world, have got time zones within them, then surely we ought to be able to manage it between England and Scotland. We could probably live with an hour difference. So if the Scots vote for independence, I wonder if that's more likely to make that hour come to pass. But what if the difference was six months? What if we were to be so far different from Scotland that our entire calendar was different from theirs by six months? Sounds ridiculous, and yet that's exactly what happened in another north-south divide, the one between the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah, soon after these events that we've heard read took place. I was very struck by that in my reading. It showed me how much I don't normally notice in my regular study of this kind of history. I wonder whether you're the same. We read the Bible for its spiritual content. And we think that its politics don't matter very much. So we don't look for the politics to be spiritual. And yet the politics might be the most spiritual thing that's here. The truth is that the northern and the southern kingdoms of this territory that's on the map up there absolutely loathed each other. So strong did their isolation from each other become over time that they ended up with calendars working six months apart. We read the history of the prophets and then the king, Saul, and then the passing of the throne to David. And that's been in these books earlier, 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, uh, before 1 Kings. And it's all about nation building. We think, how marvelous. Isn't it fantastic that God brings these diverse tribes into a single nation? And isn't it sad that it all fell apart later? Well, perhaps that's true. But perhaps equally... It might be that we're supposed to register. What an extraordinary thing it was that they ever 
held together at all. Because these tribes, these tribes were sprung from the same family of Jacob. They'd come so much to find each other impossible that the work of pulling them together took a titanic effort that was almost bound to fail. Ten of them in the uh, north and east, uh, two of the tribes down in the south. What's going on at the start of Kings? Well, the first king... Now, let me just, let me just ask you, because it, this is where it does really kind of matter... Can you work out where the dead... Can you see where the Dead Sea is on there? You can. Thank you. I wasn't sure. Okay. Can, <laughs> teamwork! <laughs> can you find the town of Mahanaim? <laughs> um, okay, we've got Dead Sea. Can you, can you show us the Sea of Galilee, uh, Barry? Brilliant. Okay. Now, what you need to know, because of the map on the left, the distance from the Sea of Galilee down to uh, Jerusalem and beyond. is about the distance from Holt to Harwich. That's why the map of East Anglia is on the right. This is a very small country, okay? Th- uh, thank you, as long as you can see that. Well, um, uh, most of what uh, the King Saul came from uh, uh, the territory, uh, if, you, if you look at Dead Sea, and just to the west of it, you'll see marked out there the town of Jerusalem. Up, 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 stop. Brilliant. Um, now, just, uh, just north of that was the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul kind of responded naturally to the tribes that were north and to the east of, of the tribal area of Benjamin. Now, David, however, came from the town of Bethlehem, which is just a little bit south, a tiny bit south. I mean, less than the distance from here to Aylsham. But his job uh, had been, in the early bits of the story, to clear away the enemies that were attacking in the north and east. But also along the way, he fought a number of battles and kind of scooped up the south. So if you look at verse 38 in your text, you'll find that there's this guy, Beniah. I think it's verse 38, isn't it? who is the commander of the Kerethites and the Pelethites. Who they? They're not a tribe of Israel. Kerethites and the Pelethites lived in the Negev. Now, the Negev is kind of like to the west of the bottom end of the Dead Sea. It's a semi-desert land, uh, but they were conquered tribes. And as often happens, the tribes once conquered gave their loyalty, their genuine loyalty, to the commander, uh, to the one who defeated them. It was David in this case. He'd brought them unity and Benaiah was their commander. And that tells us something. Uh, 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 let me find my notes, because I've been working off my notes. Uh, the start of our story is about this guy Adonijah, one of David's sons. And if you look at the people that were wrapped up in this attempt to, to get the throne um, from David, as David is dying and failing and becoming feeble... All of the people involved in, on Adonijah's side are from the north and the east. They are trying, in other words, to go back to the heartland of the good old days of Saul and say, David's my father, uh, I'm therefore supposed to be the king, uh, so let's go back to our heartland territory. So when Bathsheba comes in, Bathsheba ought to ring a few bells at this point, um, Bathsheba is the woman whom David saw bathing, Uh, had an affair with, 
uh, arranged for her husband to be killed. The baby from uh, his union with Bathsheba died, but God promised in his mercy to bring the throne to Solomon. So Bathsheba comes in and says, remember this guy Solomon, my son, whom you promised to give the throne to? What about him? Solomon is then, uh, David rushes out a, a coronation ceremony for Solomon. Solomon is enthroned uh, with the attendance of a priest. Well, Adonijah had a priest. David ha- uh, um, uh, Solomon has Zadok. Um, uh, Adonijah had uh, Abiathar, uh, the priest. Um, there are army commanders involved. There's feasting involved. But there is one very important difference. Only Solomon gets a prophet. Nathan, the prophet who's been absolutely uh, at the hinge of everything around David and Bathsheba and told David that what God was going to do in all his promises to David and the house of David. David has taken on the prospect of uniting the north and the south. So God is not interested in an Adonijah who will only respond to the north and the east. He wants the project to carry on. And it's much more likely to carry on through someone who understands the mercy of himself, God. So the throne passes uh, uh, to Solomon because Solomon is going to carry on this project. Uh, that's why uh, Benaiah is with him. Oh, you are an absolute star. you just have to catch up on the sermon later. Thank you. Um, so uh, this is the territory that Adonijah was kind of responding to. The territory that David, you can see by some of these lines, these are all the battles of David up here on the east and the northeast. Then he also was down here on this side up by the coast of Philistia uh, and down here in the Negev. So David has had all these battles in United. So what we need now is a king who will keep that togetherness going because only togetherness among the tribes will speak of God in his ancient covenant to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Solomon, at the end of our story today, triumphs. Adonijah is defeated, and chapter 2 begins with the words of the dying David to Solomon. Turn over. Now, I don't know how you were listening um, when Louise was reading. Verses 1 to 4 are nice. Verses 5 to 9 are nasty. Because verses 1 to 4 are spiritual and the others are political. But of course we can't separate them like that. God's people have to have the land. So they have to be under his rule. Now there is personal politics going on here. David is sort of saying, I should have sorted out these problems uh, at the time. But I'm going to have to leave it to you. Nonetheless, the deaths that will follow are going to be on my head not yours, because I'm giving you the instructions. And I want everyone to know, so I've got the secretary and to record this, so when it gets published in the Bible, they'll all know later. That's pretty much exactly what happened. Nonetheless, it is still all about getting the people to be secure in the land of promise. And there are still lots of opposition, even within this. David has really only relatively recently subdued the, the, the uh, fortress of Jebus, which becomes Jerusalem. And he's moved there from Hebron, which is pretty much to the south for them, 
because that's where he was declared king. And he had to be declared king three times in Hebron before all the tribes would unite to him. This was tough going for David. David is quite nakedly ambitious. He knows, look at verse 4, that there is a promise to him. Uh, The Lord may keep his promise. If your descendants watch how they live and and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And if that promise is to be kept, then there needs to be both the interior world of obedience, verses 1 to 4, and the external world of politics, verses 5 to 9. It may not be our world, but we are not responsible for desperately holding on to gains that our king is only just winning the battle for. This is fierce stuff. Getting to be the king of the entire land is going to take what I earlier called titanic effort because these people do not really want to be united and there is opposition still within the land from those who are not the people of God. Well, there is something here about how we read all the Old Testament. If we brought in Sunday school material about 1 Kings and the beginning of it, it, I can guarantee it would be personal. We would hear how Adonijah is not a very good person, and Solomon is a good and wise king. Be a Solomon, it would say, not an Adonijah. Well, all right, fine. But Solomon, as we will see as the weeks go on, is a wise king who becomes very unwise later. And what I want is for you to be able to lift your eyes from that kind of personal Sunday school model and see God at work, not just in the personal, but in what the political is about here. Because the one story is always how close the Old Testament can get us to God's people in God's land under God's rule. Let me try and put it like this, or at least part of it like this. If I took you today to the book of Leviticus or Chronicles, some bits of Deuteronomy, uh, various other bits about sacrifices, many of you would know what to do with with that stuff. And those of you who didn't, well, we would tell you. All the sacrificial systems of Moses were there for a purpose. It's interesting, at the beginning of chapter 2 here, uh, the, the, the covenant with Moses is brought out to be, so that it's clear this is not a new covenant with David. This is a, a covenant with David, the promise of a house for him forever, provided he inherits the covenant of Moses. So it's the one covenant, begins with Moses, works through David. That's how it's meant to be. All the sacrificial systems of Moses are fulfilled in the one sacrifice, once for all, of the Lamb of God, Jesus, on the cross of Calvary. With the sacrifice of Jesus behind us, no more sacrifices need ever be made. Nonetheless, those sacrifices teach us something. We don't say, well, now we've got Jesus, we can forget the Old Testament. It tells us that if there isn't one great sacrifice from God, we're all lost. We must always be in the wrong, constantly sinning and trying to make things right with God, but never quite achieving it because we have to do it all over again. We'd have to keep trying, but we couldn't succeed because the sacrifices could never be enough. Only Jesus is good enough. You'd kind of know that. You've been taught that. Maybe it's new to you today. Well, then you've learned something new. 
you know it or get it because it's about sacrifice. It's harder, though, about politics because we still have politics going on, though we don't have sacrifices. Elections this week have reminded us about politics. But the same is true here. David and Solomon are summoned to make valiant efforts to hold God's people together. They have their successes, but it is built on blood and it will fail. Because human divisions will always win out and show themselves in a divided land. The very best of options fails. The twist and the turns of the story tell us that. Just like sacrifice fails, we need a better king. One for whom this titanic effort will not fall apart. Jesus is the one to whom all authority is given. Earlier on, we heard of the captain's instructions. And Jesus' instructions in Matthew, the very end of Matthew, say, All authority is given to me, therefore, go and baptize and teach every nation. The amazing kingship of David and Solomon is there, but it fails and it must give way to the kingship of Christ. Exactly exactly as the sacrifices commanded through Moses give way to the sacrifice of Christ. So two points to finish. If Jesus has all authority in a way that sort of makes this kind of material instructive but wipes it from the board, if he has all authority, then dictators do not. Even good politicians don't. Even good politicians influenced by godly advisers don't. There can be no such thing as a Christian country. Countries cannot be Christian. They can have Christians in them, but countries cannot be Christian. States cannot be Christian. If Jesus has all authority, it is because the alternatives have spectacularly failed. And they have failed because in God's goodness, it is in order to point to Jesus. I will give you the best, and when it fails, you will know that you needed something else. So submit to that one united and universal authority. Let me tell you a story about a church in Attleborough. It's not the church that's behind the Who Cares mission. Attleboro Baptist Church uh, has been reported this week for a hate crime. On their notice board, they carried a, a note saying something like, I don't remember the precise words, something like, um, if you don't believe that Jesus is Lord, then you better hope you're right. And then that was all written up above a, a, a picture of flames. Uh, A 21-year-old reported them to the police, uh, and the police have recorded it as a hate crime. Now, I have to say, in defence of uh, of the National Secular Society of all people, they came to the uh, rescue, as it were, and said, that's ridiculous. This is is not inciting anyone. Uh, No one is being uh, asked to hate anyone else because of that, and that's the only definition of a hate crime. Uh, Therefore, this should not be... Uh, uh, any kind of crime, that we should defend this on the grounds of free speech. We don't agree, we think it's stupid, but uh, it should be defended. Nonetheless, they have been reported 
uh, and have been recorded for a hate crime. And I don't think we often appreciate that if you look at verses 5 through to 9 and what David is telling Solomon he'd better do to those who opposed his authority, how often do we register that Jesus is a great deal more terrifying than David? Much more terrifying than Solomon on their vengeance missions. We are those who have rebelled against the legitimate authority of, of Jesus. And he is the king who, Sol- who Solomon never was. Jesus did obey the law, verses 1 to 4. And he will eliminate all opposition, verses 5 to 9. And if you are here as one who does not yet follow Jesus, can I simply set that challenge before you? Of course, the threat of hell is not the reason before all others that I would wish you, wish any of us to turn to Jesus. Yet it's real. All this blood and violence and vengeance, everything that makes us look at verses 5 to 9 and go, that is horrible. They are as nothing compared to the threat that is over us if we neglect the king who is much greater than David and Solomon. All authority is his, he tells us in Matthew's Gospel. And if we do not bow our knees willingly, we will be brought to our knees unwillingly. But there is another point. Secondly, for those who have turned to follow Christ, you know the promises of God to you. Just as David did, he knew that he would have a house. He trusted in God's promise that was there for all time. But Solomon still needed anointing. The mark of God's election had to come to him. I think that tells us not to take God's grace for granted. We are part of the promise to David. We live in that, inside the house of the king that is promised for all time to David. Our place is secure. It's Solomon needed anointing. Our place may be secure, but we never pass from that security to a place where we don't need the anointing. That touch from God that reminds us of our complete dependence upon him. One of our songs ended with those words, now I surrender. And that just seems to me a perfect illustration of what this is saying. We inherit the promises. We are secure. But please do not leave those doors smugly going out, saying, isn't it great? God's been so good to me, I'm secure. Because as he goes out, God wants to give you an anointing of his grace that will make you dependent on him and able to engage in the world you go to for him and with him. It might be with who cares. It might be with family and friends. It might be in your involvement in your world at work, where you know about your vulnerability. I was hearing from a young man yesterday who in his educational experience is incredibly isolated because he is known to stand for Christ. It may be in your prayer life as you need to be reminded that nothing in your day will count. Nothing. If God is not its mover. Just as chapter one uh, itself is almost, as far as we read it, Uh, entirely without God. But if God hadn't been part of the background picture, then none of chapter one could have been written. So those are the two things. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, then just look at verses five to nine, and in the best sense, 
May your fear guide you to Christ. Uh, If you are already one who follows Jesus, then as you leave this place, leave it securely, but knowing your need for God's continuing grace and anointing. Let's pray together. Lord, never let us forget the world of blood and vengeance and death that was needed supremely in the death of Jesus to bring us to this place today. And may we who are secure in the promises of God for all eternity. Open our minds, our hearts, our hands and our lives to be touched by the anointing of your Spirit and given grace to live out what that promise and that heritage means even today and in the days that lie ahead. Amen.